Yeah. I've got a new one of these headsets, so I shouldn't have to be playing with it all message long. So that is a wonderful thing. All right, we are in our partnership series, and I've basically mentioned partnership about once, because rather than like focusing exactly in on partnership like I have in previous years, I just thought we would build out the faith. And so we've been looking at these big topics of our Christian lives, like who am I uh, in Christ? Like what is my spiritual identity? So we looked at that week one, and then week two, we looked at why am I here? What's the purpose? And, and we've got a mission to glorify Christ and to, to share His good news. And then today, we're looking at kind of the final one of those, which is where am I going uh, and so we've just really taken this big picture sweep of our Christian life. And how does that fit into partnership? Well, simply because we're called by Christ to partner together in the gospel. We're given a spiritual gift for the benefit of the body, uh, and we join together to achieve God's will and purpose uh, as we serve Him faithfully. So really, that's, it's just that big picture look. And, uh, and if you feel like this is the place you call home, where you're partnering together in the gospel for His will, then, then I encourage you to sign up and be a partner. Uh, it's not binding for life. You can actually withdraw whenever you choose. Uh, and so you just say, yes, right here, right now, I partner with this group of people for the cause of Christ. Uh, and that is what partnership is ultimately about. So we're going to be talking this morning basically about heaven. Heaven is a very... Uh, well, it's a topic not talked about a lot. There are entire systematic theologies that have pages and pages on hell and suffering and nothing really on heaven. They have a lot on the post-A-mill and pre-mill debate, but really nothing on heaven. One Christian writer put it like this, Christians are like astronauts all sitting in a rocket about to launch to Mars, turning to one another and saying, anyone know anything about Mars? Um, and that's his description of Christians. We're kind of all on this rocket going, uh, anyone know anything about heaven? Um, and that's kind of a summation, a little bit of what it's like. So I'm going to start by telling you what heaven isn't. You won't be floating around on clouds, dressed in nappies, playing a harp. As disappointing as that might be for some of you, uh, that is not what heaven is going to be. It also won't be a place where all of the selfish dreams you've had on earth are realized. You don't finally get that Porsche, I won't be able to sing like Elvis. Um, there are just things that aren't going to be realized in heaven out of your selfish dream. Also, heaven is a real place. We're not going to be simply energies floating around, but the heavens are a new heaven and a new earth. It is a real physical place where you will have physical being. A couple of quick verses. Uh, you guys don't need to try and keep up with these ones. These are quick. Uh, Isaiah 65, 17, for I will create new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Second Peter 3, 13, but based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Revelation 21, 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So right there, we have a promise again and again and again, and then in Revelation, a fulfillment of a new heaven and a new earth, a physical place. 
Now, I've mentioned this before, but I feel like we just, I have to mention this every time because it's very dear to me. And the sea was no more. This does not mean heaven is something like Alice Springs, right? The picture we have is this. The sea represents the chaos of sin in the world. So the sea was something that you could not control. The sea was a force that could destroy people in an instant. The sea was a raging, uncontrollable chaos. And so the ancients wrote about the sea as a picture of sin in the world. It's a good picture, isn't it? A raging, uncontrollable chaos. And so when it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new for the first heaven, first day that passed away and the sea was no more. What is it saying? It's saying the uncontrollable chaos of sin is gone in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, praise God, hey? Right? A world without sin. So sin, as I said, sin is what we see on the news. It's, it's the hatred of, of mankind, one to another. It's, it's pride, it's selfishness, it's all of those things. But it's also an earthquake in Turkey and northern Syria. It's also, uh, in New Zealand, we had a cyclone followed by an earthquake, right? The, the chaos of a world that has fallen, that will be gone. Right? All of that is finished in the new heaven and the new earth. So how do we describe the new heaven and the new earth? Well, throughout Scripture, to put it the most simply that we can, heaven is understood as the place where God dwells. Right? That's the most simple way I can put it. Isaiah says in Isaiah 66, 1, God says, heaven is my throne. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven right? So there's this sense where we get heaven is where God dwells. Peter says Jesus has gone into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. So the most simple way we can understand heaven is the place where God dwells. Now, for anyone who's got any kind of theology at all, God's everywhere, isn't he? Like He fills everything. That's true, but heaven is seen as the place where the fullness of God is revealed. So heaven is the place where the fullness of God will be known to you. You will dwell in the full presence of God. Heaven is the place where God dwells in a full sense that you can experience. That will be incredible. So what we know in the new heaven and the new earth is God will dwell with us. That's kind of the central point of where we're going. We will be with God. Now, we've talked about this a lot, but church, that is the goal of our faith. Your desire is to be with God, to see Christ face to face. It's not to escape hell. It's not to see my friends. Your reward, your goal, your prize is Christ. Right? That's the picture heaven gives us. You will be with God. So my favorite description of heaven is Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Church, always remember this one, zero in on this one. This picture is so foreign to us in the world that we currently live in. But it's an incredible picture, right? Revelation 21, 1 to 4, if you have your Bible. I just, this is the most amazing picture. Then I saw 
a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea, the chaos, was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with all humanity, and He will live with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He, note the singular, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Right, you get, this is what heaven is. The rest of it is minor details. The core is this. You will have such intimacy with God finally face to face such that he will wipe away the grief of this life and welcome you to an eternity of joy without pain in his presence. Is that not something glorious to behold? This is the core of what heaven's about. So we can debate the other things, but this, if, if the core of your theology is not that you will be face-to-face -face with God, then something's gone wrong in your theology. Right? He is the pearl of great price. He is the end of our heart's longing. When Christ himself will wipe the tears from your eyes and the old order will be passed and he will be your God. When Christ returns, death will be finished, pain will be finished, there will be no more suffering, and we will dwell in his presence forevermore. Now that brings me to the next point. Heaven will be incredible, we will be with God directly, there will be no more suffering, but you will dwell there physically, you will have real bodies. There is nothing evil about our physical selves, corrupted by sin at the moment, but when you're in heaven, you will have a real body. You will be born again into a physical self. And when we read about the New Testament, we see the physical self engaged in normal physical activity. We actually read about the playing of music in heaven. We read about feasting, sitting down to a meal. We read about drinking wine. Prezies are like, yes. Brothers are like, I don't want to go. Uh, anyway, um, right, but we, we actually see these things happening in the scriptures. And what does that mean? It means we have a physical self. You have a real body that interacts, that eats food, that celebrates, knows joy, sings songs, and praises God forevermore. I'll tell you what heaven is like. This is the best way I can think of it. We will be made whole the way we were meant to be in God's presence. In an instant you see him, you will be made like him. The greatest love you have ever known now, love of a husband and a wife, the love of parents for their children, the greatest love, I just want you to think about it. 
Or maybe it's what you've experienced. Maybe it was the love you received from a parent when you were a child. I don't know, what is the greatest love you've ever known? That love will be eclipsed by the relationship you have with every single person in heaven. Because there will be a relationship there that has no shame, no guilt, no pain, no grief, no hidden motives, no backstabbing. It will be an open, fully revealed self, captivated by the love of Christ as you share that together. That is the multitude of heaven. The love you have with everyone there will eclipse the greatest love you've ever known now with the light of Christ guiding us. What a picture. That is what it's going to be like. It's a relationship with God that then flows into all of us. Revelation 7, 9, and then... And this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. People from every tribe, language, tongue, nation, people from everywhere, a multitude you can't count, and every one of them knowing a greater love than you've ever experienced. Right? Knowing a depth of unity and peace and joy greater than you've ever felt forever. This is where we're going. This is what sits before us. There's really only one way to get something like that underway in heaven, isn't there? And that's with food. As we mentioned earlier, food is significant in every single major event we have. Most events revolve around food, shared meals after church, weddings, church lunches, graduations. We all end up around a meal. Throughout scriptures, meals are incredibly socially important. And then we get to the beginning of our eternity and we have a huge wedding feast, right? This is the beginning of our eternity of joy face-to-face with Christ. Now, this passage was mentioned recently. We're just going to go into a little bit more depth this morning. But this is our major passage that we're just going to concentrate on for the rest of our time. Luke 14, 12 to 24. Luke 14, 12 to 24. This is the wedding feast. The feast of feasts, right? This is going to begin that incredible love and joy that we're going to know. Luke 14, 12 to 24. You might know the story, it's a well-known one, maybe you don't, but listen, it's really, really good. He also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back, and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, Invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he told him a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. 
But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married and therefore I'm unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind and lame. Master, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done and there's still room. And the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Now this parable that Jesus told is referring, as I said, to the wedding feast of Jesus when he throws a giant party for everyone who is saved. This is the one party you don't want to miss Not only because you will see Jesus face to face and you will be transformed in the blink of an eye, but if you do miss this party, you are going to hell for all eternity, right? So that's your option, this party or hell. That is what our story is telling us, a good party to be at. Now, at this meal that Jesus is having, so that's where this takes place, he's at a feast with a bunch of Pharisees, with a bunch of rulers. And so Jesus is at the meal, and he's sitting there in this lavish, elite company, which these guys liked to keep. And so sitting at this table of wealthy, rich, well-to-do, well-thought-of societally people, Jesus looks around at all of those social elites, all of those people who are trying to... uh, wheel and deal with each other, gain something off the presence of another person in the room. Everyone is in that room at that meal to gain something for their own benefit. And Jesus says to that group of people, by the way, when you have a lunch like this, you should invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, those who can't repay you, because if if you invite wealthy, well-to-do people, that's all the reward you're going to get. Heaven is not impressed. There's a conversation killer, right? Think about the context. It is a feast of those people. And Jesus just goes, bang, as Jesus does, to that group of people. Looking at the track record of Pharisees in the Scripture, I'm pretty sure this would not have gone down very well. There's always one person, isn't there, who can't handle an uncomfortable silence? Anyone in this room, by the way? No one's prepared to admit it. I'm looking at you, Elkie. (laughs) There's always that one person, and so this guy's looking around and going, oh my goodness, this is so awkward, and I'm I'm hosting the party, and what do I do now? And he's like, It'll be really blessed for those who are in the kingdom of heaven to eat bread there, right? Done. Conversation's back rolling. I've taken it from a negative to a positive. Jesus talked about food, but he made it all bad. I've talked about bread, but I've made it really positive. Dinner saved, right? That's what's going on in this guy's mind. Well, Jesus then in our passage says, let me talk to you about that. Right, so he addresses what this guy has said. And he says, 
A man gave a feast, and he sent his servant to tell guests to come, for the feast was ready. Now, we've got to remember, if we go back 2,000 years, when you were putting on a meal for people, you didn't drop off at Woolies on the way home and grab a barbecue chook, right? When you were putting on a meal, animals had to be slaughtered. They had to have their blood drained. They had to be prepared. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was a time. It was a process. Things had to be harvested. Fires had to be lit. It was a big deal. And so you sent out invitations to a party expecting an RSVP to come in when the feast was ready. It was a thing that took time. It was a thing that took effort. Not only that, people actually responded to the RSVPs. Tell you what, that may be the weirdest thing in the Scriptures, right? Anyway, that's what happened because it was a big deal. It wasn't something you could do at the drop of a hat. It took time. In Jesus' story, people had responded to the RSVP and said, yes, we're coming. And so the feast was prepared for those who said they were coming. And then when the servant went out to say, it's ready, now come, that's when the excuses come. So this is the people who have said, yes, I'm in, I'm coming to the feast. But then after that, when the meal's ready, it's found they have something else going on. Right, That is your story. First guy, I bought a field and I need to go check it out. Now, this was a lengthy process. You didn't have realestate.com in those days. You actually had to go physically see things, do things. This was a financial decision. It was a big deal. It was a money decision. And this guy is caught up in business at that stage. And so he says, look, I know I said yes, but I'm caught up in my real estate empire and I just can't make it. And then we go to the next guy, the second guy, and he says, look, I've bought five oxen and here's the thing, if I don't go and test them out and it's one of them's lame, then I've dudded myself of my money for that oxen, right? So if I don't test that out, then it turns out I've made a bad decision financially and things aren't going to work out for me, so I'm really sorry. I know I said yes, but I'm caught up in this other thing that I have to put first. I've got to get done. So, so I said yes, but I'm too busy to actually get involved in your meal. Third guy's my favorite. I'm married, so I can't come. I don't really understand that one. I'm like, if I say to Beth, we're being invited to a really fancy meal, it's a chance to dress up, then it's not me putting the brakes on going. Uh, No, it would be me putting the brakes on going, sorry. Beth's like, I'm in. Um, So I'm not sure I get that answer really, but anyway, whatever it is, maybe it's just one of them lame excuses, like, you know, let's say our grandma died again. Uh, I don't know, like something to try and get yourself out of the event, you just don't want to go. Whatever it is, this guy has said yes, comes up with a lame excuse, and doesn't want to go. This is what they have in common. They got invited. They said yes. And then they are so caught up in the affairs of the world, be it real estate, money, relationships, that they no longer attend the wedding feast of the Lamb. So the host in the story gets angry and he says, right, go out and invite everyone, crippled, poor, people from Jinjin, whatever, like everyone, right? Bring them in, we'll take them all. Um, To send out the invite to those who will actually turn up. That's the point of the story. Send out the invite outside of those people to anyone who will actually come. 
And so the invites go out to all of the people who would otherwise be rejected and finds those who will come into the feast. Of course, there's still room after that. And they go out and they bring out the people from the highways and the hedgeways. And, they, and of course, what are we talking about here? In the context of our feast and our parable, Jesus is talking to the Jews. And the Jews have affirmed that, yes, we are the people of God. Yes, we love God. But they are not coming to the Lamb. They're not coming to Christ to come to the feast because they've been caught up in the affairs of the world. And Jesus is saying, now we're going to go out and we're going to bring in the Gentiles. We're going to bring in those who weren't originally invited to the feast. And those who say yes will be welcomed in. That is the point of the story, a truly, truly challenging and in-your-face story in its period of time. Church, how do we apply that to us today? Well, it's easy, isn't it? How many of us received our invitation? Maybe we were six years old with mum or dad at home. Maybe we were nine years old at Sunday school. Maybe we were 14 years old at a church camp. Maybe we were 30 years old from a work colleague. And you heard about the invitation that Jesus paid the penalty of your sin, he died for you on the cross, and he welcomes you into eternity with him where you will be with him forever. And you, at whatever age it was, think about yourself right now in whatever context, you said yes to the RSVP. You said, I'm in, I want to be at that feast. And then a few years went by. And the affairs of the world got more intriguing to you. You were six, you grew up, you went through puberty and suddenly you realized that boys and girls were a lot more interesting than they used to be and that began to take over your attention and your time and your thinking and your desire of what you wanted in your life. Maybe you were that teenager and you grew older and you finished school and you got a job and suddenly your career and your advancement and what you're aiming for in life began to take over. Or you were older and you were like, I'm going to have to retire and I need to build that nest egg. I need to get on top of whatever it is. But here's the thing. At some point, although you said yes to the RSVP, you no longer intend on heading to the feast because you're just so busy doing other things. Oh, in the back of your mind, you're like, yeah, I hope I get in one day, but, you know, that's just to the side. And Jesus told this story for this very reason to say, look, those who have said yes don't necessarily turn up at the feast. The proof of you RSVPing yes is in a life lived for Christ's glory. A life lived for Christ's glory and not for your own. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says yes on the, on the RSVP will enter the kingdom of heaven 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, the one who surrenders their life to the will of God, who lives for him in his glory, they will be at the feast, not the one who simply says yes. Church, calling Jesus Lord won't get you to heaven, nor will singing it in songs, nor will standing up the front, nor will being seen at prominent church events, nor be noticed by as many people as you can. That's simply acting like those who receive the RSVP but don't in the end turn up to the party. Jesus says the difference, the difference is the fruit of how you live. Is your life given over to the will of the Father and His glory or are you living it for yourself? for your dreams of real estate, for your dreams of wealth, for your dreams of relationship, for those dreams that are given, and so many more. What are you truly living for? Is Jesus your pearl of great price, or is it something else? And if it's something else, you won't be at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus spells it out for us. Matthew seven fifteen to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, the grapes gathered from a thorn bush or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. right? What is the life of the person who says yes? Is their life producing fruit, which is the glory of Christ, or is their life producing fruit, which is the glory of themselves? That's a great way of understanding where our lives are truly at. What is their fruit? We began by asking the question, where am I going? We looked at where we are going if we are indeed in Christ, to an amazing place where you will see him face to face and you will be without sin, the sin of people and the chaos of a sinful world. You will be with him face to face and you will know true love and security. But we must ask ourselves, and it doesn't matter if we've been in church every Sunday for 60 years, Am I going to the feast? Or did I tick yes and consume my life with worldly affairs? Look at your fruit right now and ask yourself, around me, at work, at home, in church, do I bring division? Do I bring disunity? Do I support rivalry, dissension? And these things are listed as the fruit of a false Christian, of a bad tree by Christ. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of a life focused on Christ results in a person who brings peace, who brings love, who brings joy, who brings forgiveness, who brings grace, who brings self-control, right? Where is your fruit? Where is your heart? 
Have you said yes, but are you truly going to the feast because your life is lived for the glory of the Father? You've said yes, but is your old life crucified? And you now live for Christ and Christ alone. That's the challenge of our passage. Before you this morning sits what awaits. Seeing Christ face to face. And the love and joy that will come from that place. But also what sits before you is those who said yes but won't come because they've caught their lives up in the affairs of the world. Church, I don't tell you this to try and condemn you. I tell you this to say, repent. Repent, give up your focus on this life. Hand your life to Christ and know the eternal joy, love and peace that will come from seeing Christ face to face. That's the goal. That's what we have waiting for us. Let's pray. Lord, we clearly see again and again in your word that ultimately what heaven is about is we will see you unveiled. We will behold your glory and in an instant we will be made like you. Lord, we will live in the love and joy and peace and righteousness of our holy God. Lord, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. We will dwell together. And the love and joy that we will know will eclipse anything we've ever felt. Lord, your word is also clear. That it's not about just saying yes, but it's about being dying to the old life and living a new life for Christ and his glory. Lord, may no one in this room deceive themselves. May we freely give our lives over to the service of God and experience the joy that waits. Lord, we just commit ourselves to you in your precious name. Amen. Just in closing, uh, the rest of the year, we've finished that partnership series. The rest of the year now, we're exegetically working through 1 and 2 Peter. So I'm really, really excited about that to get back into a book of the Bible. So 1 and 2 Peter, start reading and rereading it. Get your mind around it. Thanks, everyone.